enjoy the goodies. Uh, God knows how to encourage us. A lady came up to me and said, back in 1972, which was when I came to the church in Coventry, I was at the then Lanchester Polytechnic. And I wasn't a Christian, I was just feeling my way towards the Lord. And from time to time I would dip into your church on a Sunday. You had a part in my coming to faith. And that person has served the Lord uh, very wonderfully uh, on the mission field abroad for many years since then. She said, I wanted you to know that you had a share because often we don't know uh, what happens when we uh, invest in someone's life and when we serve the Lord. So that was a wonderful piece of feedback. So uh, thank you for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is a living word and powerful. Thank you that you're a God who speaks. Take the written word and by your Holy Spirit speak its truth into our individual hearts now. Build us up in our faith. Lead us in your ways, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most daunting and exciting times in my Christian life was in 1992 when Helen and I were part of a 10-person team uh, ministering in Kerala in the south of India. The bishop of East Kerala had asked us to go and teach on renewal in the Holy Spirit. How were we to do that? We knew that the congregations would be large and that they would be responsive. And if we said at the end of the service, come up for prayer, there would be a wave of people and we would be swamped and we would be there for hours. So, uh, after some thought and prayer, I spoke to Tim, our leader, and I said, suppose instead of doing that, we ask the Holy Spirit to come and to minister to people in their places. And then we as a team can move around and bless what God is doing. Uh, that was something that I had not done before, and certainly not in India. Tim said, good idea. So the first time that we were planning to do this, it so happened that I was the preacher. So Tim said to me, well, you can call on the Holy Spirit to come as well, can't you? I thought, thank you very much. You're the team leader, but... Uh, well, of course, going back to what I was saying, you submit and do what the team leader says. Now, that may have been all right, except that we weren't in some country church out in the sticks. We were in the cathedral. And we weren't just with a congregation of church members. This was a pastor's conference, and the bishop was there. So you can imagine that it was in, with enormous trepidation that I prayed, come Holy Spirit. Well, God came. And many powerful things happened in people's lives. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were healed and so on. And at 26 other services and house meetings after that, when I asked the Holy Spirit to come, he came every time. And so we returned, thrilled and exhilarated, actually exhausted as well. It's the only time I've ever slept through a takeoff on the plane, which is a pretty noisy event, of course. 
And, of course, return to with greater confidence in the power of God and his willingness to use even me. So the point is that it was a new challenge from God and it resulted in a new experience of his power. I had never been that way before. And that's a verse which in a few moments we'll come across when we think about the crossing of the River Jordan where God says you have never been this way before. And I think that on that occasion I felt a bit the same as the priests in particular and the people in general must have felt when they stepped into that fast-flowing River Jordan in faith that God would hold the waters up. They faced a new challenge from God. They had a new experience of his power. And I think there are parallels between, in general terms, those two situations. God is going to bring similar challenges to you as well as to me in your Christian life from time to time. He's going to bring some situation that you've not encountered before where he calls you to trust in him and to act in faith. And of course he wants us to accept that challenge, to act in obedience. And on occasions it may be radical obedience, which is what this section is about. And if we're willing to be a forceful man or a forceful woman, if we're willing to go for it, if we're willing to step out in faith, then we will have a new experience of God's power a new joy, a new excitement in God, a new sense of fulfillment in our Christian lives. But we can choose to stand trembling on the riverbank and not step in. God wants us to offer radical obedience. Now, I just want first in this session to have a very quick look at Rahab in chapter 2. And this is very quick. Because she had to show obedience in a situation that was new for her. In a word, Joshua sends the spies out and she takes them in, shelters them, conceals them in the well when the soldiers come to try and find them. And as a result, she asks the spies to spare her life and to spare the life of her family members because she knows that God is God and that his people are going to take the land. I want to say three quick things about her. First of all, she was obviously undeserving. Rahab was a prostitute. So she'd clearly broken on many occasions one of God's Ten Commandments. But more than that, in a very important passage in Deuteronomy, God tells Uh, his people, that when they enter the promised land, they're not to do the detestable things that the nations there do. I'm going to pick this up again later. And uh, things like sorcery and witchcraft and uh, spiritism and so on. So more than possibly, uh, Rahab had also been caught up in those detestable practices as well as her prostitution. And yet, God was willing to spare her and her family. Reminds me of the song that we sing at the well sometimes, perhaps you sing at church. 
outrageous grace. Do you know that song? That's an inspired phrase, outrageous grace. In our human terms, when we think of what we deserve or don't deserve, some of the things that God does are plain outrageous. But he's God and he delights to show grace to those who are highly undeserving. Actually, there's something even more outrageous about Rahab than this. If you look in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, she is directly in the family line of Jesus. That's the redeeming power of God's amazing, outrageous grace. So she was undeserving, just as you and I are sinners, totally undeserving of our salvation. You know, I think the reason we find all of this idea of God's grace so difficult in some senses is because of what's been described as the folk religion of this country. The folk religion of this country is that if you try hard and do your best and live a good life and do more good deeds than bad deeds, you will earn your way to heaven. That's actually, in some sense, what many, many people in this country believe. That's why we find it so difficult to grasp this concept of grace. And perhaps that's why God says three times through Paul in Ephesians 2 that it's all of grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. Again, that is not your own doing. That is the gift of God. And again, not of works so that no one can boast. Our inheritance is all completely of grace. Secondly, she was given a promise. Quite simply, it was a promise of life. She and her family would be spared. And it's obviously a very solemn undertaking that the spies give because they say, our lives for your lives if we don't spare you. And we're talking about the promises of God. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, not die, but have everlasting life. We have those promises of life in Jesus. And thirdly, she had to obey. She had to put this scarlet thread in the same window through which she let the spies out uh, from her house that was built into the city wall. And also, she had to undertake to bring her family into that house so that when the city was conquered, they would all be together with her. Obedience is the way that we claim the promises of God. Paul speaks at the beginning of his letter to the Romans about the fact that he's an apostle preaching the gospel in order that he might bring about, quotes, the obedience of faith. Yes, God has done it all in Jesus, but he summons us, repent and believe the gospel. That's the obedience of faith. And when we repent and when we put our trust in Jesus, that's when the inheritance becomes ours. So that's the story of Rahab and because she trusted in that promise of life and gathered her family to her they were all saved when the city was taken 
That's just a bit of a backdrop to crossing the River Jordan. Let's turn now and read from chapter 3, just the first 11 verses. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand in a heap. So here is God, the God who says through Isaiah, behold, I am doing a new thing. The God who has new challenges and new experiences for you and me and new opportunities. Doing a new thing for the people of Israel because they have never been this way before. And I think we can boil down his commands to three simple monosyllables. We preachers love to preach in threes as you probably know, although it doesn't always work out that way. First of all, see, verse 3, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. The Ark was the sign of God's presence. So when you see the Ark moving out and moving forward and going down into the river and into the other side of the Jordan, then you follow it because you're following where God himself is leading. See. That reminds me of what surely is a key verse, uh, and one that dear John Wimber, bless him, really highlighted for us. John 5.19. Jesus says, "He he, the Son of God, can only do what he sees his Father doing. And that is how we're called to live the Christian life. Not according to our bright ideas, not according to our enthusiasm, not according to what we think might work, 
according to what God says. We are to see what he is doing and get in line with that. I think that the development of the Alpha course is a brilliant illustration of that. I don't know if you know the story. It was actually put in its present form largely by Nicky's predecessor at Holy Trinity Brompton, John Irvin, who of course became the dean at the cathedral. And it was a course for new Christians to build them up in their Christian faith. So Nicky took it over, and by one of those strange happenings that can only be described as God's overruling, he found that he had a course of 12, all of whom were non-Christians. And by the end of the course, they'd all become Christians. So he thought, this is interesting. I could use this evangelistically. So he started to use it in that way, and of course, finding that people came to faith in Christ. And then someone else heard about it. I think actually it was a Baptist minister. and said, hey, I've heard about this course of yours. Could you give me details? Perhaps I could run it in my church. And that's how it then began to mushroom through this country and so many parts of the world. And of course, it's been used amazingly to bring people to faith. And we saw tremendous effects for that in our own church. In fact, it got to the point once or twice where people who were being baptised as believers, having been saved at Alpha, when they stood up to give their testimony, would say, and then I went on the famous Alpha course. And everyone would start to laugh because they knew that that's how people came to faith. But you see how it happened. Nicky Gumbel did not say, let me devise an evangelistic course that other people will want to use. He saw what God was doing and got in line with that. And may I apply that to those of us who are on the team at the well. Forgive me because I'm going to do that several times today, but I think it's so important that we apply this to those who are on the prayer team. In the prayer booth, every appointment is a new situation. need to remember that. And so when someone asks for prayer... In the first instance, we're not relying on the knowledge that we've obtained through going on training courses or reading books. We're certainly not relying on technique. Uh, Helen and I do a lot of prayer for inner healing. And once or twice down the years, people have said, tell me, what is your technique? We say, there is no technique. Because each person is different. And we look to the Holy Spirit every time. And in a similar way, it's no good relying on past experience. Oh, a few weeks ago I was praying with someone with a similar situation. So I did A, B and C and it worked. So if I do A, B and C today, it'll work. No. We're looking to the Lord. And uh, we are wanting to see what the Father is doing and get in line with that. That is why we need the gifts of the Spirit, and particularly those gifts of revelation, so that God can show us what this situation is actually all about. That's why the Scripture says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And actually, that's a command, isn't it? Question, is that one of the most neglected commands in the Christian community? be interesting wouldn't it if I said put your hand up 
if you can honestly say, I'm eagerly desiring spiritual gifts, or if I said that to a Sunday congregation, how many people would honestly be able to put their hand up? God really convicted me about that some years ago. And so every morning, this is what I pray. Lord, give me more of your spirit that I may move more freely and more boldly and with discernment in the prophetic because we're told to desire the spiritual gifts and especially the gift of prophecy. I recommend a prayer of that kind to you. It's taking this command seriously and saying, God, I want to hear from you. I want to see what you're doing and get in line with that. And just one other little thing. Timing can be very important in the Christian life, not just in the prayer booth, but in anything. The instructions are very specific from God through Joshua in verse 2. After three days, the officers gave the command to get moving. Very easy to rush ahead of God in enthusiasm if he calls us to do something that we're keen to do. Or to lag behind if we're a bit nervous and trembling and uncertain. I found in church leadership that it wasn't always enough to know what God was calling us to do. I needed to sense his timing and get that right as well. So see what God is doing and where he's leading. Secondly, fear. Another interesting little detail in verse 4. Second half of the verse, keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. What's that about? That is about the holiness of God. They were aware of God's awesome holiness in a way that I think quite often Christians in the West are not today. They knew that God is not to be trifled with. They held him in awe. Someone has coined the phrase being pally with the deity. And yes, he is our father and we can call him Abba, but we can be too pally with him. If we're not careful, we can take the attitude that he won't really mind too much if we don't do what he says. God is a God of love, but it's a God of holy love. And he is the God who is high and lifted up who is thrice holy. I remember years and years ago hearing David McInnes say this. Listen, I can't preach the love of God too much, but I can preach it too exclusively. Yes, let us as preachers and in the prayer booth tell people again and again that God loves them. But alongside that, let's also remind people that God is a holy God. And that his love is not like a marshmallow. A marshmallow is sweet and sickly. It's soft and can be pushed into any shape that you like. And when we have talk about love that leaves aside God's holiness and the fact that he's given us certain standards, then that's what love degenerates into. And you can use love to justify almost anything that you want to. No, God's love is a holy love. He's concerned for our long-term well-being. 
He knows that certain things will ruin that. That's why he says they're wrong. That's why he gives us commandments. It's a holy love, not a soft Father Christmas type love that says they're there and lets you get away with anything. <clears throat> and so we need to remember that the Bible tells us on many occasions, not just in Proverbs but elsewhere, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, people again find problems often with that phrase, the fear of the Lord. They say, well, wait a minute, perfect love drives out fear. Yes, that's true, but we need to define what we mean. We're tending to think in terms of the fear of a tyrant. Now, it's understandable if you're afraid of a tyrant because you never know what he might say or do next bit like the queen in Alice in Wonderland, off with his head. And you don't know if you may fall out of favour with a tyrant, be thrown into prison, executed at a moment's notice. Just the sort of thing quite often that can and does happen in North Korea. No, this fear is not of what God might do to me in those sort of terms. It's a fear of what I might do to him. And in particular, a fear that I might grieve him. You see, when you love someone, you don't want to wound them or upset them or grieve them. I mean, if I want to do something that I know is going to hurt Helen, hopefully I don't say, oh, well, that's just too bad, I'm going to do it anyway, although it's going to hurt her. If I know it will hurt her, then I avoid doing it. We don't want to grieve the ones that we love. And that's how it is in our relationship with God. He loves us. And we don't want to grieve his heart of love. We might add some other things as well. A fear of missing God's best. Because as we keep saying, it's through obedience that the fullness of God's blessing comes into our lives. It could be a fear of receiving God's discipline. Because again, God in his holy love is prepared to discipline us if we continue to go astray. What shape might that discipline take? Health problems possibly? Difficulties with our finances? Lack of peace? Relationship problems? Perhaps we don't preach enough on the discipline of God. Because as a good, loving, responsible father, he is willing to do that. And then we might add in the context of the well, fear of failing our guest by not hearing what God is saying and seeing what he is doing. So, see what God is doing, fear him in the proper sense of the word, and step, step out in faith. Now, my friends, we need to understand that at this time of the year, the River Jordan was not some little trickling stream. It was swollen by all the spring melt from the mountains, and it was a raging torrent. It could have been 20 feet deep and could easily have been flowing at 10 miles an hour, which is pretty fast. And God says to the priests carrying the ark, Step into the water when it's like that. 
And it was only when they stepped that the water stopped. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? Taking that first step. And yet it's so important that we do because only then will we see God begin to fulfill his promise. And again, that can be true when we have a prayer appointment with someone. On occasions when people have come from an inner healing appointment and we've talked around Helen and I a bit, then we found, well, I've only really got that much to go on. I don't really know where this appointment is going. But as we have started to pray and prayed about that, so the Lord has led us on step by step. And even if we do think we know where we're going, there are occasions when God leads the appointment in a different direction. We have to be open to him. I'm going to be quoting, I think, in the next session from that wonderful king, Jehoshaphat. One of the things that he said uh, when his, uh, w- the nation was threatened by a, a combination of five armies was this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Team members, that is a wonderful verse for you to take into the prayer booth. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God is faithful, and he does not let us down when we have that attitude. The first step is daunting. It was daunting for Peter when Jesus invited him to walk to him on the water. It wasn't until he put his first step onto the surface of the water that he actually knew for certain and experienced the fact that it held him up. And we have to be willing to take that first step. Say it with me. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. And that's a big risk that the uh, priests took as they stepped into that roaring torrent. And that risk can take all sorts of forms, not just in the prayer booth. It might be that we're in conversation with someone and the Holy Spirit prompts us to speak a word for Jesus. It might be with someone and they share a need and we know that God is saying, offer to pray with them, not just pray for them at home. And you know, non-Christians are usually wide open to receiving prayer, delighted when we offer to pray for them. It might be at your place of work or somewhere where you have to take a stand for righteousness, and that can be very difficult. It might be within the context of church, leading your house group for the first time. We're talking about those situations where your heart is thumping, and that'll be different for all of us. God is saying, step out. Take the first step and I will honour your obedience and I will strengthen you and I will hold you up. We walk or we live by faith and not by sight. That's the nature of the Christian life. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It is a life of faith But can I say it's not blind faith as some people uh, accuse us of. Because it's based on the promises of God 
as we keep saying in these sessions. And it's based, again, on the character of God. Let me just point out to you a little phrase in verse 10. Uh, Joshua says, this is how you will know that the living God is among you. I love that description of him as the living God. And it comes a number of times. Young David the shepherd boy. Here's the way that Goliath the giant is taunting the Israelites. And righteous anger arises within him. And he says this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should challenge the armies of the living God? And it was in the name of that God that he went out armed with just a sling and a few pebbles and slew the giant. How about Daniel, who was willing to stand up for his faith and continue to pray three times a day to his God, even though it meant the den of lions? The king was trapped on that occasion, spent a restless night, rushed down to the lion's den early in the morning. And this is what he cried out. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Answer, yes, because he's the living God and he does things. He acts powerfully on behalf of his people. And the other thing that we can rely on is our previous experience. Although these folk were not the generation that had come out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, they'd heard about it from their parents. And they knew that God had parted the waters of the Red Sea. And that helped to build their faith that he would part the waters of the River Jordan. And where you and I have seen God's hand at work, where we stepped out in faith and he honoured our faith, we need to recall that and give thanks to him because that builds faith in the current challenging situation. So then, they're actually to step out. And lastly, they are to consecrate themselves. Verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I wonder if anyone here went to Christian Endeavour in past years. Does that mean anything to anyone? Yes, two people. In many ways, it was ahead of itself because it was an organisation that got ordinary Christians, in inverted commas, to lead every part of the meeting. And a lot of people cut their teeth in Christian service. I gave my first two or three talks at, at CE. And once a month was the consecration evening which was just what it said, a focus on making sure that you were really consecrated and dedicated to the Lord and to his service. And it was emphasizing that there's no room in the Christian faith for being half-hearted, uh, but that we need to be sold out to the Lord. He was utterly committed to us. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem that last time. He prayed, not your will, not my will, but yours be done in Gethsemane. He refused to offer an active defense at his trial. He refused to call down 12 legions of angels. He went to the cross. He refused to come down from the cross, although he could have done that. 
He was utterly committed to you and me. And he calls on us to be consecrated to him in every way. So those are the steps involved in radical obedience. Let me just close this session by saying very simply that as I look around, I see many people living empty lives who are bored, non-Christians, who have not even discovered the purpose of life. And because life is so empty, they're looking round for excitement and fulfilment. Maybe in extreme sports, or uh, maybe in one sexual encounter after another, doing things that are foolish or surprising or dangerous. I want to say this. I have not found the Christian life boring. I have not had one moment to get bored since I supposedly retired eight years ago. The Christian life is exciting because God has new challenges, new experiences, uh, new opportunities to serve him. But they only come as we trust in his promises, obey his commands and actually step out in faith. Often they only come when we offer radical obedience to him. Let us pray. Father, thank you that the Christian life, though not easy, though often a challenge, is with that incredibly rewarding and fulfilling and satisfying. Lord, help us to be those who are willing to obey, however daunting that step may appear. And Lord, if there are those here this morning who know that you are calling them to something and who are hesitant help them to echo the words of uh, Peter who said, Lord, if it is you, call me to come to you on the water and who then stepped out in faith. Help us, strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.